Today's guest says that the potential for great success is hidden in plain view. We'll find out what he means in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. And I'm also very pleased to welcome Rabbi Stephen Barr. Rabbi Barr has spoken all over the world and is a regular speaker at Fortune Magazine Summits. He also keeps busy as the author of several books. He is married and has several children, seven, I believe. Yes, Rabbi Barr? <laughs> Last time I counted, that's right. Well, I, I hope you uh, haven't missed anybody. <laughs> it just feels like 15. Uh, I understand that completely. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to Mind Talk. I'm delighted to have you join us today. It's a real pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Well, Rabbi Bard, tell us about this notion of yours that the potential for great success is hidden in plain view. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, there's this delusion that I grew up with, and that I think is very common, that there's a certain characteristic called, and it's phrased in different ways, that people are born winners. And, and, and it, it carries on in all kinds of subtle ways, like the, the, the hero movies. Even Legos got into it, that there's a brand or race or grouping of people they have, were born with a special you know, sign on their head or touched by an angel or something or other that gets them, enables them to be able to do things that um, could other normal, you know, regular people like me or you can't, cannot normally do. And this is, is just a disaster. And when you speak to people who really succeed greatly in life and you hear their stories, you realize, they don't think they're special at all. Um, and what separates the, the people who succeed greatly and ones who don't is the ones who really do succeed realize they're not special. It's quite uh, enigmatic when you think about it. And you can hear that from whether it's Steve Jobs, Steve Martin, um, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, go up and down. I, I remember what struck me about this. I was giving a class to my... Um, I think it was at 10 at the time. My son was in the audience. And I was telling him that the struggles that you and I go through, Edison went through. That's a key point in my book. And, um, and my son stood up in shock. And he said, that's not true. And he was, his project in school at that time was doing a biography on Edison. And he was reading books on Edison and everything. And he said, no, Edison just figured it out. Because the biographies in those days did not describe the struggles or the failures of Edison that he himself talked about. You know, they, it took him 10,000 tries to figure out the light bulb. And his famous quote is, like, you know, I didn't fail 10,000 times. It took me 10,000 times to figure out what didn't work. And you know, one of the monikers to um, the Steve Jobs is, has achieved is that he's called America's biggest failure. <laughs> right? and it's a very interesting thing that it's not more so widely known, but in certain circles, that's what he's called, his name. And not as a criticism of him, but as a compliment, because his failures were very public, whereas 
you know, when you're reading, again, Edison or Andrew Carnegie or um, uh, the Wright brothers or anything like that, you tend, they, they, they write the biographies, like, as Winston Churchill said, history is written by the victors. <laughs> Indeed. Right. And they're writing these, their biographies or influencing their biographies and cutting out all the bad stuff. They didn't fail, they figured it out. And it makes them look like this superhuman kind of character. And Steve Jobs couldn't do that because he was kicked out of Apple and there's a lot of very public things. And everyone's going like, how did he do that with all these failures? And the point is, no, 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 you're making a big mistake. All success has the same amount of failures. We all encounter the same stupid people and the same obstacles and the same kind of crises and the same kind of... And, and, and therefore, our absolute success in whatever way you define it is just as available and right there for you as is everybody else. It's just the people who succeed, like Steve Jobs never had this idea that he had to be special to win. He just went for it. And the people, and what holds a lot of people back is, well, I'm not cut out to to get what I really want out of life. And just thinking that stops you from getting it. Absolutely. Were, were you able to to help your son have a different view? <laughs> That's a great question. That's a great question. Uh, there's, there's an old saying that you never know if you'd make it with your children until the grandchildren come along. Right. So. So I talked to him about it, but I don't know. He was very dubious. <laughs> you know, he sort leave of it to the children. A little bit. What's that? Leave it to the children. Leave it to the children. I hope I got through. <laughs> it, how embarrassing that would be, you know. And 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 that's a very good point because it, the most, you know, there's like if you think about it, these there's two attitudes. You know, all people. You know, like like my, one of my favorite jokes is. The whole world can be divided into three kinds of people: those who can add up and those who can't. <laughs> so, 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 uh, so you can you can divide the whole world into two kinds of people: those people who believe that winners are not born, and those people who believe they are. Right, but there really is a third category, and that is the children of winners. And those people have the hardest time of all. Because they believe that you're born winning. You have that stuff in you, and you're going to win. They just think they have it because their, their father was Mozart or their father was Beethoven or Shakespeare or Michael Jordan or whatever it happens to be. And because of that, they don't think they have to try because they think they're born with the winning stuff. And that's why almost invariably the children of very successful people don't go on to do anything. You know, as, as I was um, reading your book, which is, of course, entitled Win, Thinking Can Change Your Destiny, I, I noted, because I hadn't really thought about it before, you made just that point on more than one occasion. The children of these people whose names roll off our tongue, we don't really, for the most part, we don't know who they are, we don't right. think about them. We don't know about them. And, and I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but you're absolutely right. L right. L I want to go back a, a bit to your beginning because you describe yourself in, in the early pages of when 
your work at the uh, request of a, a young social worker who wanted you to work with an interesting population, and you said, well, sure, I'll do that. And then you described yourself as having been so green that you had no appreciation of what a bad idea that was. What was the population? <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> it was a halfway house in Los Angeles. I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and they needed somebody to come speak at this halfway house. And, you know, to be probably at the time, I thought a halfway house was something, was a house that hadn't been finished yet. <laughs> Okay. I had to, a little so green. Before, so green. I, this is before the internet. So I had, there was no way to even look up what it meant. You know, I had to ask around, and a lot of the people I was, didn't know what it was either. And it took me a while to figure out what a halfway house is. And for those people who don't know, who you know, similarly green like I was, it's a place where people who come out of prison go. Uh, instead of just putting them on the street or just letting them go, they put them in a in a semi-prison house environment. They have to show up and they have to be there and they have to attend things. But they have all the freedoms that they could just go off and get, and obviously they want them to get a job and help them integrate into society. the story of Sir Richard Branson. Um, Great story. Now, Just passed away. Well, it, you know, it, it really is a, an amazing story. Tell us his story. Well, he, he just passed away. I don't know if you realize that. It's a few weeks ago. He just died. Uh, it's a great story. 1954. He announced to the world he was going to run the mile in under four minutes. People were trying for close to 100 years in recorded running to be out there. Some people thought it was impossible. The human body couldn't, couldn't go that far fast. And in 19th, May 1954, in Oxford, England, he became the first person to run the, the mile under four minutes. Right? Now, that's you know, a great factoid, and it's interesting. But what's an incredible thing is that one year from that date, people were running faster than him. Hmm. Now, those people, do you go, you go, if you ask most people who's Richard Branson or who's the first person to run the four-minute mile in under a minute, a lot of people know Roger Bannister, right? But if you ask people who was the second person or who was the third person, people haven't got close, Right? Now, that person who ran the mile in under four minutes, to, to, to give you a sense of appreciation here, to run the mile under four minutes, you've got to be running an average speed of 15 miles an hour. Okay. The average home treadmill has a top speed of 12 miles an hour. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't even 
put the, my treadmill at 12 mils now and look at it. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I, I have no idea how you run 15 miles an hour. It's like beyond my, like, how do you do that and maintain that for close to four minutes? So you know, the top speed today, the world record is only about 15 seconds faster than Roger Bannister said it 70 years ago. So, so um, 65 years ago. So, so um, the people who ran the mile under four minutes one year after he did it could have done it before Roger Bannister. But they didn't. Why didn't they? Because they didn't think they could. Even though they were eminently able to do it. They, they, they didn't suddenly train. They didn't suddenly like look at his shoes and go, oh my goodness, that's the difference. They didn't eat Cheerios in the morning. They're not a sponsor either. Right? They, they, uh, yet. But they, uh, they, they right? what, what changed? Just an idea. They realized they could. Meaning that if you went to them a year, the day before Roger Bannister and the four-minute mile, and you said to them, you can run the mile under four minutes, they would have said to you, it's impossible. I can't. I'm pushing myself to the limit. I'm not tough enough to do it. Mm. And they were wrong. Because it's nothing to do with tough. It has to do with easy. As soon as they saw Roger Bannister do it, go, I can do it too. It's easy. And they did. I met someone not too long ago who ran the four-minute mile in high school. Like, mind-boggling. I don't even remember his name, and that's the point. People are just doing it. It's not it's no big deal anymore. When you make your goals easy, they become incredibly available to you. You know, it, it, it sounds like if you don't know or believe that you can't, then you can Right, that's a famous um, Henry Ford quote. Mm -hmm. The people who say they can and the people that say they can't are correct. Whether you say you can or whether you say you can't, you'll be correct. And that's exactly the point we started out with. The only people who think they're not born winners are the winners. Henry Ford did not think he was anything special. He just believed you, can, you, you, you don't have to be special to achieve anything you want to achieve in life. It's everybody else thinks that he was special. And that's what keeps us from being the Henry Folds. You make the point that telling a child that he or she is a born loser, you refer to it as a form of bullying. In fact, you say there is no greater form of bullying than to tell a child they are a born loser. What do you mean by that? Right. It's a, obviously, it's a disaster because... Because, you know, there's physical abuse, which is of awful and horrendous. But the mental abuse is, is even more damaging. The physical abuse you can observe and you can heal, but the mental abuse is very difficult to put. You don't know where to put the Band-Aid. So when you, when you tell a child that they're incapable of, any, of, of becoming anything or, or anything specific, You've, you know, you cut out their potential in, in life. They, they are stuck with whatever comes their way, and they don't think they can ever change that. And that's absolutely debilitating. It's just we don't realize that we're doing that 
you know, obviously the extremes when you actually get parents that, God forbid, do say terrible things like that to their children. It's it's terrible, but we don't realize that we're doing that when we when we put out these superhuman movies or these um, uh, accolades to stars and winners, so, so to speak, winners, that they're born with this kind of stuff. Because what you're implying is that some people are not born with it. So when you tell when you when you when you talk about people who are born winners, you're implying that some people are not, and that. That has a very deep impression in children. So it's it's very it's critical to be mindful of the language that we use. Period. But certainly the the language that we use to and uh, and around our children. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. You see, people think that they can tell their children they're phenomenal and they're superstars and. They can do anything they want, and they're great, and all that, all that kind of stuff. You see, consistently, commonly, given over to children, and and um, the problem is that at one point, your children kind of go to school and they realize every parent's telling their children the same thing, and it's, they soon realize that, yeah, you know, you're saying it because I'm your child. You're not saying because you believe it's true. There's a there's a great movie that just came out called Winner, not Winner, Wonder, excuse me, Wonder, about a child born with facial deformities, and goes to school. It's based on a true story, and it's a book. It's a phenomenal movie with um, um, Julia Roberts and uh, I forget the, the male actor, but but it's a it's a great movie. And there's one scene where his his mom is saying to him, "You're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful," even though externally, this child has got a lot of facial problems. And the kid turns to you, have to say, you have to say that because you're my mother. Mm. And you, you look and go, oh, my goodness, he figured it out. Yes. And what's the mom going to say now? And she answers beautifully. And she says, it's because I'm your mother that I'm telling you the truth, that you're beautiful. And it's nothing to do with how you look. And it's nothing to look to with how anyone looks. It's the beauty that emanates from inside that really is all that's important. That is a beautiful and response. Beautiful response. It's a great movie. I highly recommend it. And and one of the things you see from that movie, and I, I like to ask people this question, is if you haven't seen the movie, go look at it and then ask this question, who's the kid that suffers the most? And what you'll see from it, and it's a point I bring in the book as well, in, the, in my book, Win, is that the kid that suffers the most is the bully. And I don't think that's the point that the movie is trying to make, but it's just inherent in the nature of people who who get their kicks out of ruining other people's lives do so because they have very decrepit lives themselves. Absolutely. And... I so you feel sorry for the for the bully more than you do for the for the victim. I want to go back to um, Sir Richard Branson, because yeah. many people don't think about all of his accomplishments and all of his disabilities. You say that he's actually got some in- interesting is certainly 
a way to think about it, disabilities, among them, he was certainly quite dyslexic, but among his disabilities was the, a difficulty he had between understanding gross and net profit. Now, here's a man who owned 400 different companies. How oh, is it possible? Oh, Richard Branson, right, right. Yes. So how how is ahead. it possible that he right. could not know the difference between <clears throat> gross and net profit when he actually was so profitable? Uh, it's an amazing story. You, you can, when, when we live in an incredible time because when I was growing up, you couldn't do this. Uh, but today you can go on YouTube and you can meet most of the people you think are uh, your heroes or wit, what you call winners. And Richard Branson has got a lot of YouTube videos and you can hear him talk and, and hear his own words about what success means and, and how to achieve it. And um, he grew up in my hometown in England. And uh, I, I like to say, you know, in America, we pride ourselves. I, I've got dual nationality. I became an American citizen. I'm very proud to say a couple of years ago. Very, very uh, uh, important thing. I'm very proud that I did that. Um, and um, he, so I can criticize both countries now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, but in America, we like to pride ourselves that these, these billionaires dropped out of college, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and um, uh, other, I think Zuckerberg did, I'm not sure. But uh, uh, in England, we kind of really do it right. Um, Richard Branson dropped out of high school. So, uh, you know, none of this college nonsense. So, <laughs> so, uh, he, he really went for the he, gusto. <laughs> his incredible success. I mean, he's, he breaks all the business rules, and the business is a very there's a kind of the golden rule is specialize and keep to your core competencies. And he has 400 companies underneath him, all the way from Coca-Cola and wedding dresses to airlines and cell phones. And he's amazingly dyslexic. I mean, he, he admits it. He talks about it. And he, it's very hard to watch these YouTube videos because he jumps all over the place. He can't keep a thought straight. It's very difficult, very painful to, to pay attention to him. And uh, one of the things he openly admits, and I would not have believed it, is he doesn't know the difference in gross and net. Now, I bet you if you had somebody who cleans your house and they don't know the difference between gross and net, you wouldn't hire them. I mean, it's like how can you how how can you possibly not know the difference between gross profit and net profit? Right. Let alone be one of the richest people on the planet, right? Doesn't make any is, sense. It doesn't make any sense. No. And the, and and the absolute point is, as we as we keep saying, is don't focus on what you're struggling with. Focus on what you need to get done. If you look at your the things that are stopping you from getting whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. You're going to be stuck. He never did that. He didn't have the education to do that. He never thought that these things would, would inhibit him from achieving what he wanted. He, and he talks about this. Is you ha he loved what he did. I always imagine he's, in, he's sitting with a career officer, and the career officer says, you know, this is what you need to think about. Become an artist, a gardener maybe, a chef, Right. But don't go into business. I mean, you don't know how to add up. You don't know how to, if you don't know gross and net, how can you possibly? And he didn't grow, come for money. His, he got his star. His mother found a necklace on the street, brought it into the police station. And after a few weeks, no one claimed it. 
his mother, they said to his mother, you can have it. And she sold it for a few hundred pounds. And that started his first business. It was a, a, some kind of newspaper. It's extraordinary. He went from one, it's an amazing story. But he, he did what he loved. And he never imagined that he couldn't, he couldn't succeed. It's an amazing, amazing concept. He, did, he didn't know that he was supposed to fail. He didn't know. Right, exactly. And, um, and, and thinking this, you have to be born a certain way or born a winner is just crazy. It just holds us back. The the concepts that you share in Win and the the shifts that you ask the reader and today's listeners to make on some levels they're they're so easy and so simple and on every level they're so powerful. I, I have to thank you, Rabbi Stephen Bars, author of Win, for spending time with us today and for sharing all of your expertise. Tell us how folks can get more information about well, what you're doing. Well, it's been a true delight. You've been a wonderful host. It's a great interview. It's gone by. I looked at my clock just now and go, oh, my goodness, where did the hour go? <laughs> so uh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, they can, they can uh, Amazon, uh, the book is going to come out May 15th. Just look up Win and by Stephen Bars, that's spelled B-A-A-R-S, or look on our website, uh, core9.live, or getbliss.com. And uh, we'd love to, love to get feedback and hear from people how, what they think of the book and these ideas. Core 9, what is that? So the, the book is based on a seminar called Think Like a Winner. And it's, and it's built on nine core ideas. And the book Win is based on one of those ideas. I see. You, as we close out today, there's just one more uh, quote of yours that I'd like to share with the listeners. You say that when you are living your life in the present, there is only one thing you want from the past. It's lessons. That is so powerful and so critical. Again, thank you, Rabbi Stephen Bars, author of Win. Change your thank thinking, change your destiny. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Doctor. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. There are lots of places where you can listen to Mind Talk. You can find out by going to the Mind Talk website. You can download the Mind Talk app from iTunes or Google Play. But again, the main site to go to get all the information you want about Mind Talk is M Y N D T A L K dot O R G. I'd love to know 
where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk today. And if you have any questions or comments or thoughts or recommendations, so do send an email to me at Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, then that, that's what it is. Unacceptable. You take care.
Rabbi, I understand that you at one point spoke uh, to the United States Senate. What was that experience like? Oh, that was that was very interesting. Um, every morning, the Senate, when it opens for session, and the Congress, uh, starts with a prayer. No, people don't don't know this. I didn't know it either. And I was uh, very honored to be invited to uh, open that session. Uh, they they have a, a official uh, priest or minister who's the official minister for the Senate, and the Congress has the same thing. Uh, but now and again, they have guests ministers come in, or rabbis, or imams, or uh, spiritual people, and uh, offer that prayer. And it was a very, very meaningful experience. It was very nice. Should I ask you what your prayer would be for the Senate today, or should I leave that alone? <laughs> um, I think it would be very, you know, they don't like it getting into too much specifics of the politics of what's going on in the present. So it was pretty generic, and I, I told them a, um, a, there's an old Jewish idea that we're born. And so it's just a way of thinking about life, and it's very healthy. And that is we're born with a, you know, we, obviously, we can appreciate we're born with a certain amount of years that we have, right? So, you know, when we feel like someone died too early, um, it's tragic. So whether that's true or not, but nevertheless, a, we understand that. There's a Jewish mystical idea that we're born with a certain amount of words that we have. In other words, you, you're given yeah. a, a certain amount of words that you can use, and you can say whatever words they want you want, but there's a fixed number. And, um, and it's not necessarily that that's true. It's that um, you, you should be thinking more about what you're saying than just going on and on. And we, I'm sure we've all met people that just, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, ruin the cake because they put too many ingredients in and it's a time to be quiet. And so I said to them as prayer that, please God, that they, they say the right words with the right people at the right time. And uh, I think that's true today too. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Let's go back to changing how you're thinking. It, it is so true that many of us believe that we either have that stuff, whatever that stuff is, or we don't. So for the person who has, a t who has grown up believing that they just don't have it, how do they begin to shift their thinking in the ways that you suggest? Well, one of the ideas I teach is that, that there's three great lies. One of them is that there's no such thing as tough. So once you appreciate you're not going to get what you want because you're tough, and you're not failing because you lack any toughness. Right? That, so that's, that's, a, a, that's a hard one for a lot of people who have grown up aspiring to be tough. Yeah, exactly. And we're all struggling with this. But you've got to realize there's, there's, nobody is tough. You go to, you know, you know, Mike Tyson, right? You think of as a real tough guy, right? But he had a tremendous amount of personal weaknesses that became very obvious. 
So in one area, yes, he's tough. In the boxing ring, you don't want to mess with him. But in a lot of personal areas, which really undermined his ability to succeed in life, he had a lot of weaknesses. So um, what enabled him in the ring to have toughness and outside the ring to not have it is that he just loved boxing. So, and that's true for all of us. So he was doing something that came easy to him, relatively speaking. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So if, if you ask me, could, I mean, maybe this is in theory, could I, you know, if I sat down and said, that's it, I'm going to be the next Mike Tyson at my stage in life, I don't know, but let's just say uh, I want to go for it. And I work out and I eat lots of beef and push myself and take the right hormones and things and, and uh, steroids. So, you know, maybe maybe I could do it, but I'm never going to do it if I think I have to be tough to do it. I, I just wouldn't, I, no one has that kind of, no one has that man of steel stuff in them. It, does, it just doesn't exist. The only way you're ever going to do it, and the only one that people who do do it is the ones who love it. So I, I'm not a marathon person. I, you know, I like jogging now and again, but I'm not a marathon. I know people like wake up at four o'clock in the morning and they're out. And I, I couldn't do that. Well, for me to do that, yeah, I would have to be tough. And tough doesn't exist. But you ask them how do they do it, they love it. They're not doing it because they're tough. They're not waking up and they'll go, oh, I hate this, I can't stand this. Oh, I wish I didn't have to do this. But they do it anyway. They, no, they, they can't wait to get up because they love that thing. So is part of the work to figure out what it is that we want to do that we enjoy versus what we have to be, we believe we have to be tough to accomplish. Oh, so, so, so that's, that's the other, uh, that's another mistake people get into. It's not looking for what you enjoy. That won't get you anywhere. That's a huge mistake that we've all sort of fallen into. Do what you love and uh, figure out how to make it. And, and for some people, for very few people, it does work. But for, and, and, and although I, I argue that it really doesn't argue, it doesn't contradict the, pun, the principle of what I'm discussing, is that it's not doing what you enjoy, it's finding the enjoyment in what you want to do. Ah. Very different idea. Extremely. Extremely, exactly. The, the people who are doing what they do and they become great careers, like Michael Jordan and things like that, right? They really wanted, they first had the aspiration to be great basketball players. And then they learned how to enjoy it. And very often, you hear their story, they weren't any good at it. So it wasn't that they, they did what they enjoyed. They wanted to do it, and then they figured out how to enjoy it. And that's the whole trick. And it's the second great lie, is that there's no such thing as giving up. We have this idea, sort of like a computer. You have your computer, and you can erase something, and it's gone. You have a program in your computer or on your phone, an app, and you put it uninstalled, and it's not there anymore. Now it won't buzz you, and it won't, you, know, you won't get Krispy Kreme donuts when you want it and things like that, right? And that's true, but a human being doesn't have that ability. Your dreams, your aspirations never go away. If you wanted to be the next Michael Jordan, you still want to be the next Michael Jordan. And even if you're 65 years old and, you know, 
weigh 400 pounds, you still want to be the next Paul Michael Jordan. There's no such thing as giving up. You've, you're just aggravated over it, and it's still grinding in you. So thinking you're getting anywhere by calling it giving up is count is pointless. What you should be doing is just think about it, ponder it, go over it again, reinstall it, put it on your to-do list, read books about it, and you will find the, the way to enjoy it. It will come to you. So I'm this 65-year-old person who wants to be a female Michael Jordan. I want to be, uh, I don't even want to compare myself to Michael Jordan. I want to be the best female athlete in the world, period. But I'm 65 and I'm 400 pounds. So for all kinds of reasons, that doesn't seem like a reasonable goal for me. I mean, I'm 65, I'm 400 pounds. So how do I switch that around? Well, it, it's not going it, 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 to, the, the goal of being, you know, the gold, the, the gold athlete, you know, to win the gold in the Olympics and the enjoyment of the process. So you may not get to be that person who wins the gold. But in the process of getting that thing, you'll break some barriers. And you, you, know, and you see this all the time with people later on in life. They, um, they go back to what they wanted to be. And they, they don't become the, the initial image. There's a, there's a great... Um, um, YouTube video of Conan and Brian giving the commencement speech, the award speech at Dartmouth College. And it was a year and a half after he was kicked off the Tonight Show. And he makes this very point. He says, you're going to be disappointed with what you wanted because by the time you get there, it's going to change. But if you pick yourself up and think about what you really wanted, going to realize that the core, the essence of what it was that thrilled you, that excited you about that, is still viable. It's still there. Because ultimately, whether you get a gold at the Olympic, or whether you can stand up against Mike Tyson in the ring, or whether you'll be a sumo wrestler, ballet dancer, whatever it happens to be, those are outside awards, outside recognition. But the inner desire that makes that makes those things enjoyable to you. And the guy who's running the marathon isn't doing it because people are applauding it. He's doing it because he loves the, the whole concept of the race, of just doing that thing. And that's always available to you in some form. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm going to ask you about, I'm quoting from your book, When. You say, pushing yourself to do what is hard is like trying to bring a mountain to you. Doing what you like is paying a visit to the mountain. It, it, it sounds like, on the one hand, if you're pushing yourself to do something hard, you're almost pushing yourself to do something that on some levels, not only do you not really believe you can do, but maybe you're not sure that you want to do, versus 
if you're pushing yourself to do if you, if you're pushing yourself to pay a visit to the mountain for example you're taking charge of yourself your life your time right exactly exactly and you're not going to win the first way you're just not if 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 like you know let's just take a very simple example that i think nearly all of us can relate to right you know i like most people want to lose weight so what do I do? I don't put in the kitchen 10 boxes of Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy Kreme and Baskin Robbins ice cream. This is not an advertisement for any of these products. They're not sponsors here. But Correct. Like Thank you. Or, <laughs> right, chocolate, Godiva chocolate. I, I don't do that. You could take the, the, the healthiest person, the thinnest person you want, and you walk into their kitchen, right, and they don't have a kitchen with all those products in it. They're going to have a kitchen that's filled with broccoli and, and uh, you know, diet, you know, 1% milk and, uh, you know, all the things that, we, that, that they want to eat. Because why? Because if they, put, if they were surrounded by those things, they'd never make it. They, they make it easy for themselves. I see. Because they're just not tough. And if, if they're waking up the same way as everybody else, we're surrounded by all the temptations. And they're making it, and they just could, they just don't have it in them to do it. You have to. They make their environment easy to be able to do what they want to do. That's that's the secret. You tell the story of Sir Richard Branson. Um, Great story. That, just passed away. Well, it, you know, it it really is a, an amazing story. Tell us his story. Well, he, he just passed away. I don't know if you realize that. It's a few weeks ago. He just died. Uh, it's a great story. 1954, he announced to the world he was going to run the mile in under four minutes. People were trying for close to 100 years in recorded running to be able to. Some people thought it was impossible. The human body couldn't, couldn't go that far fast. And the 19th, May 1954, in Oxford, England, he became the first person to run the, the mile under four minutes, right? Now, that's, you know, a great factoid, and it's interesting. But what's the incredible thing is that one year from that date, people were running faster than him. Hmm. Now, those people, do you go, you go, if you ask most people who's Richard Branson or who's the first person to run the four-minute mile in under a minute, a lot of people know Roger Bannister, right? With going to ask people who was the second person or who was the third person, people haven't got close, right? Now, that person who ran the mile in the under four minutes, I'll give you a sense of appreciation here. To run the mile under four minutes, you've got to be running an average speed of 15 miles an hour. Okay. The average home treadmill has a top speed of 12 miles an hour. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, I can't even put the, my treadmill at 12 miles an hour and look at it. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I, I have no idea how you run 15 miles an hour. It's like beyond my, like, how do you do that and maintain that for close to four minutes? So, you know, so you go to the top speed today, the world record is only about 15 seconds faster than Roger Bannister said it 70 years ago. So, so um, 65 years ago. So, so um, 
the people who ran the mile under four minutes one year after he did it could have done it before Roger Bannister. But they didn't. Why didn't they? Because they didn't think they could. Even though they were eminently able to do it. They, they, they didn't suddenly train. They didn't suddenly like, look at his shoes and go, oh my goodness, that's the difference. They didn't eat Cheerios in the morning. They're not a sponsor either. Right? They, they, uh, yes. But they, uh, they, they right? what changed? Just an idea. They realized they could. Meaning that if you went to them a year, the day before Roger Bannister and the four-minute mile, and he said to them, you can run the mile under four minutes, they would have said to you, it's impossible. I can't. I'm pushing myself to the limit. I'm not tough enough to do it. Mm. And they were wrong. Because it's nothing to do with tough. It has to do with easy. As soon as they saw Roger Bannister do it, go, I can do it too. It's easy. And they did. I met someone not too long ago who ran the four-minute mile in high school. Mind-boggling. I don't even remember his name. And that's the point. People are just doing it. It's not uh, no big deal anymore. When you make your goals easy, they become incredibly available to you. You know, it, it, it sounds like if you don't know or believe that you can't, then you can. Right, that's a famous um, Henry Ford quote. Mm -hmm. The people who say they can and the people who say they can't are correct. Whether you say you can or whether you say you can't, you'll be correct. And that's exactly the point we started out with. The only people who think they're not born winners are the winners. Henry Ford did not think he was anything special. He just believed you, can, you, you, you don't have to be special to achieve anything you want to achieve in life. It's everybody else thinks that he was special. And that's what keeps us from being the Henry Folds. We're going to take a break in a moment, but when we come back, you, you made a point, um, and, and it was just a, a tiny one line, uh, but I thought it was a powerful one line, where you talked about the impact of uh, telling a child that he or she can't. And uh -huh. when we come back, I'd, I'd like to pick up with that uh, sure. and just chat a moment about how powerful it is what we as adults, as parents, just as adults in general, find ourselves t saying to children that we may think are helpful or motivating, but in fact are uh -huh. anything but. So that's what we'll uh -huh. pick up. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk, and we will be right back with Rabbi Stephen Barr's author of Win. Don't go away. And um, I never, I didn't even know what it was, let alone. You know, so I had no idea how bad this idea was. <laughs> you know, and these are the people who go there are um, obviously struggling with a lot of issues, and they need people to talk to them who understand the issues and where to go and how to deal with it. So I was just walking in and go, "Oh my goodness!" Here I was. I was a teacher. I was a rabbi. 
young rabbi just out of school. And, you know, I was used to kind of uh, dealing with very simple, you know, textbook kind of stuff. It was sort of like, a, you know, it would be like, um, you know, I, I'm in flight school flying single prop planes and they put me in an F-16. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a challenge. It was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and, I, and, and when I'm sitting there, and I realize where I am, to whatever degree I understood it, and who I'm talking to and who I'm with, and I go, oh, my goodness, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> you have those moments where you say, how, how did I get here, and who told me? You know, who do I have to blame to get out of this, you know? It's uh, it was it was kind of it was a little shock, but those are the kind of things that um, we all encounter. We all end up in these kind of different scenarios, and they're phenomenal scenarios to expand your horizons. You you make the point that as you really began to listen to these men, that you learned a lot from them, and that a misconception that you had started to unravel. What was that misconception? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, absolutely. It was a, it was a real um, um, incredible insight. Because I, 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 obviously I knew there was such a thing as an alcoholic or drug addict. I mean, we're all familiar with that population in the world. It's in the news. It's, it's talked about all the time. And there's this impression that we have in society that these people just aren't biting down on the bullet of life or experience or toughness and and not pulling themselves together. They would just kind of like, it was like if I just could have a talk with them and say, okay, guys, it's time to pull yourself together, um, they would do it, you know. It's sort of like, you know, you see this debate all the time going on in America today. Whatever side of the political debate on any issue, whatever it happens to be, everyone thinks that, you know, half half of America believes one thing and half of America believes the other thing. And each half thinks, if I could just sit down with the opposing side and tell them what I know, they would change their minds. And things don't change like that. People don't change like that. And, um... Um, it, it wasn't the, the it, it's not that these people aren't tough or it's not that toughness is going to help them get anywhere it's realizing you don't have to be tough to get anywhere to succeed in life if, if your goals, whatever it is we're all sitting here frustrated because if we're not, we're, we don't have time to sit and listen if we're, if we're Steve Jobs or we're, obviously it's not Steve Jobs but if we're Bill Gates or we're you know, Michael Jordan, and we're we're living the dream, and we're you know uh, you know running at all 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 cylinders firing. We don't have the time. So if we're if we're frustrated because we're not achieving our goals, it's because those goals that we really want, those achievements that we really want, we're not getting because we think we're not tough enough to get them. And that's a huge mistake. One of the great lies that's been perpetrated on humanity. It's definitely in the Western world, that to get what you want, you have to be tough. And it, it comes from a whole history of, of uh, this kind of thinking that, um, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, life has to be difficult if you want to get anywhere. And, you know, it's 
deferred gratification and all these kind of things that we grew up with, ideas in the world. And it just isn't true. If you think about everything that you do, that you do well, I don't know, you know, I, doctor, I don't, I don't know your personal life, but I'm going to go out on a limb here. If I'm wrong, you know, you tell me. <laughs> but I'm going to go out on a limb and su- suggest that you are not a crack cocaine addict. That's you know? fair. <laughs> That's right? fair. Now, when you woke up this morning, right, and let's say your name next door neighbor has left a pound of crack cocaine on the on the landing, right? How difficult was it for you? To not sniff it. Not terribly. Not terribly, right? So we, we've got dozens of things, thousands of things that we, we do that other people struggle with enormously. We're not achieving those things because we're tough. Like I'll, I'll be honest with you, right? You know, please don't tell anybody, but I'm not a crack cocaine addict either. I'm going to tell everybody. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> so it's not because I'm like superhuman. So for me to go to a, an addict, a drug addict, alcoholic, food addict, whatever it happens to be, and say, you got to do what I do and be tough is a lie. And they're not going to listen. Doing... Yeah. What's that? They're not going to listen. If they're not going to listen, they can't do it. And it's not the reason I do it either. I don't, you know, the, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous is one of those two guys. One of them was Bill W. So they asked him to sit in an Overeaters Anonymous session because Alcoholics Anonymous spawned all these different anonymous groups. Overeaters Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all different kinds of things. So they asked him to sit in on, and he said afterwards, you can't cross-pollinate. Alcoholics, alcoholics, overeaters, overeaters. Drug addicts, the drug addicts—they're not the same people, even though they're exactly the same twelve steps. So they asked him why not, and he said, "Because the whole time I'm sitting there listening to these people talking, the only thing I could think of is why don't you people just stop eating?" Huh. And he knew enough to know that when it comes to alcoholic, if you're if you're not an alcoholic, if you've never been tempted by such a thing then you just don't understand what an alcoholic means. An alcoholic walks in the office and says, I, I'm really sorry, I missed my appointment, I showed up late, I got into a car accident because I had a drink. So you want to say to him, well, just don't drink. And that's easy if you're not an alcoholic. But if you're an alcoholic, that's, not, that's no small thing. But we all, you know, if you're not an alcoholic, not drinking isn't, is not difficult, it's easy. We're able to do so many things that other people look at and go, I wish I could do that. I wish I wasn't an alcoholic. I wish I wasn't an overeater. I wish I right? We do these things not because we're tough, because we found it easy. We also have things, whatever it happens to be, and we don't have to go into that now, right? Discuss it with your, you know, your, your, your therapist, but your, and your therapist probably knows what they are. We all also got things that we don't find easy, right? Whatever it happens to be, whether it's food or whether it's reading or whether whatever is attention or whether it's anger, whatever it happens, we all got these issues, right? We've all got these. No one yet is perfect. I haven't met that person yet. Well, actually, I have my wife. But <laughs> other than that, right? So other than my wife, right? No one else is perfect. Some of my kids think they're perfect, but we're working on that one. Okay. Right? So, 
So nobody is perfect. That means everybody's got things that they're struggling with. And the reason you are struggling with them is because we think we have to be tough to overcome them, which is absurd because all the things that we do overcome has nothing to do with being tough. We, we don't do these things because we're tough. We do them because we find them easy. We find them enjoyable. We like doing it. So the same thing with everything we want to achieve in life, with every goal that we do have. You have to figure out how to do it and make it easy and make it fun and make it enjoyable. And if you figure that out, you'll have it now. The idea that we can shift how we think about things and that in shifting how we think about things, we actually can shift our level of productivity, uh, quote-unquote success, because success is always different for everyone. It is, it's a really interesting concept. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I would like to pick up right here with how do you actually begin to affect that change in thinking. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk. I'm having a conversation with Rabbi Stephen Barr, who is the author of many books, but today we're discussing when thinking change your destiny. Change your thinking, change your destiny. We'll be right back. 